song. It's good to worship Jesus together. I love when he sends his presence in tangible ways. God's will is to pour out his Holy Spirit on his people so through the preaching of the gospel and the singing of the gospel and the fellowship in the gospel there would be revival and the gospel would reach the nations through his church and so I'm very thankful for that great hope and God's will for Parkview in that. I'm, uh, I'm going to pray, and uh, I'll invite you to, to pray with me. Jesus, I just want to say thank you for, you are the only holy one. You're the one whom the Father has chosen to lift high and exalt. Spirit, I pray that you would use your word this morning to lift high Christ. I pray that you would work in every heart. Mind to produce handwork from this sermon. Jesus, you're the pastor of this church. I pray that you would care for all of us in individual ways to meet our personal needs, but also care for us corporately so we as a church can be yours, found in accordance with, with your will. I pray um, with thanksgiving knowing that every time your word is opened, it never returns back to you void. So we thank you in advance for the purposes in which you set out for the preaching of your word this morning. We praise you, God, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, my wife Lizzie and I have been uh, married for just uh, close to 10 years now. can't believe I can even say that. And uh, I'll never forget um, what the first season um, of being around her family was like. Uh, Lizzie has four other brothers and sisters, um, and between all four brothers and, sibling, um, and sisters, there are 18 grandchildren, and uh, when Lizzie and I lived in St. Louis, we were always together with her family during the weekend, especially during holidays, and what would happen is that all 25 of us, give or take, would pack like sardines into the mother-in-law and father-in-law's house. Me, Mom, Papa's house would get crazy. You could just imagine what that would look like or sound like to have 18 grandchildren running around with socks on hardwood floors. They cry, they laugh, they scream, they yell, they fight, they boom, they bang, all of it. It's crazy, but it's beautiful. And um, one of the, <laughs> over the years, thanks for listening. And uh, over the years, it's been both a blessing and also intriguing for me to watch my father-in-law um, lead his family. My father-in-law's name is Bob. We, I call him Pop. I've watched him intentionally engage and also speak to the, to the grandchildren. And uh, one of the things that has stuck out to me throughout the years is when Bob is around in the midst of an argument, a struggle, or a conflict with the grandchildren between a toy or something else. When there's two or more little children in um, a conflict with one another, ready to tear each other's heads off, I've seen Bob over and over again um, approach the two children, and in this soft-spoken, gentle, but firm voice, he would say this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And I remember the first time I heard this, I was like, really? That's it? Like, that's the way that you're going to resolve this conflict, Bob? Like, how about finding out who had the toy first? Or who hit who? Or who's in the right? Or who's in the wrong? 
But rather than fixing it, my father-in-law, Pop, Bob, in this unmoving, godly call to the children, extends to them constantly an invitation to love. And to be honest, sometimes it works. Oftentimes it doesn't. But almost always, whether the kids obeyed or did not obey, the children almost always would at least for a moment stop to consider the words. And so these children, raised in a Christian household to know and love God, called in the midst of relational tension or strife, when stricken by love, all, at least at the minimum, would stop to think about love. Why? Because deep down, whether it be a child or adult, we all know that love is right. And for the Christian, by and through faith in Christ, we know that it is love which embodies and conveys the true power of the gospel. So this morning, as we look at our text, I'd like to talk to you about the role of love in our relationships with one another, especially in the midst of tension or strife. And what I would like to do with this is show you um, how this call to love, of course, serves to benefit all people. But for the one who knows the love of God, a.k.a. the Christian, how he or she is able to love selflessly and freely without payment or need of reciprocity because the ultimate reward for, Christ, for a Christian in the rhythm or pathway of love is Christ himself. And love is possible because by the Holy Spirit's power, Christ lives and works in his people. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn that on or open. We're going to be in the book of 1 John this morning. 1 John chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Um, and we're going to be in uh, chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. Sorry, I forgot my clicker. 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. And for those of you who are taking no notes, I've titled the sermon this morning, The Power of Christ in Relational Love. There are three things I'd like to talk to you about or show you from this text as we consider this idea. Number one for you note takers is this. I'd like to show you the unchanging gospel. Number two, what is our kingdom hope? And number three, the power and prize of Christ. The unchanging gospel, what is our kingdom hope, and the power and prize of Christ. We're going to begin by reading the scripture up front again. John chapter, 1 John chapter 2. Verses 7 through 11. John writes this. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of God right now. We're moving to point number one, and I'd like to show you the unchanging gospel. 
Well, as we begin to uh, look at our text here this morning, the first thing I'd like to draw your attention to is how John here introduces us to this command, which which at first he says is new. But if you notice, in almost a contradictory way, at the same time, he also refers to this command as being old. Verse 7, Beloved, I'm writing to you no new command, but an old command command. Verse 8, at the same time, it is a new command that I'm writing to you. It's kind of confusing, or it looks as if John is confused. And further, what exactly is this command that John is talking about here? It isn't until verse 10 that we find out that this command that he is referring to here is love. John says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And really, it's, it's striking because this word or idea of love here, although it dominates this entire section, is only mentioned once. What John is doing with his opening thoughts of love here, being both old and new, is reminding this church of the message that they had first heard and received upon their salvation. In other words, this new command of love through the gospel was also the old command for this author and this church because it was the one they had embraced and believed in when it was preached and first brought to them. It was the way that they were taught and instructed on how to live as Christians. But it's important for us to note here that this idea of love in and of itself did not originate in the teaching or ministry of Christ. In fact, the idea of love reaches far back into the Old Testament, found in God himself and his desire for his people. Leviticus chapter 19 says this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Deuteronomy chapter six says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. But um, many people are quick to overlook this this very fact right here, that love is actually a thing of the Old Testament. When, When thinking about the God of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, thoughts of God being harsh or fiery quickly come to mind. People think that it isn't until the New Testament through Jesus that grace comes and love prevails. But this is not an accurate understanding of God in the Scriptures. Why? Because the scriptures say that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means he doesn't change. Which means that the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. Therefore, he has always been a God of love and grace. Jesus himself, when he came, taught that the law and all the prophets teaching from the Old Testament were summed up in the law to love God and neighbor. And so what makes this idea of love here new is not so much the commandment itself, but rather the giver giver of it being Christ himself. He is the one who in John chapter 13 said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And when he taught this, he was pointing to himself as the object lesson. And so John here is reminding the people in the church that there was only one time in all of history that the command, which was from old, was lived out and fulfilled in whole. Jesus renewed and fulfilled it in the most complete and perfect way. With a depth and reality that no one could have ever dreamed up or, or made up. 
And it was by and through his love that we and this church were saved and instructed to live. Thus, this commandment or idea, which was old, was never out of date, perfectly relevant, and not just the central theme, but also the applicable um, message to our salvation. God is love. We're going to see that in chapter 4. We must love. We're looking at that right now. And the reason why John is writing this here to this church is because the Gnostics or the false teachers of this time were promoting a different gospel than this. They were promoting a higher level of Christianity or spirituality through sets of rules, mystical experiences, and our encounters. John here is writing to the church and saying, no, there is only one gospel. It is unchanging. So let me remind you what is above and beyond all else, the true mark of Christian faith and maturity. Are you ready for it? Love. This is the gospel you heard. This is the gospel you received. And this is the gospel you must keep. It does not expire. You can never grow out of it. You can only grow into it. So why do you and I need to hear this gospel message this morning? Well, because... Although we may not intellectually ascribe to this idea, we know that the teaching of the Gnostics here is wrong. We, all the time, are tempted to believe that there are certain things in the Christian life and faith that are greater than love. What do I mean? I mean, most often when you and I think of Christian maturity or rock stars in the faith, what comes to mind are authors and teachers and theologians, and preachers, Christians who are well-read and can quote the Bible or maybe teach a seminary class, have a fine understanding of ecclesiology, deeply understand church history, and or are connected to big names doing big things in big places. All of these things, by the way, are great. But did you know that the Bible says that you can have and do all of these things, and if you don't have love, it means nothing? It's vanity, it's meaninglessness, worthless faith. I get this from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The Apostle Paul writes this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. What is love? How do we as Christians define love? Well, the chapter goes on to say this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. It is not resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So now we have faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. See, John here in our passage is talking about the true mark of a Christian. 
highest levels of spirituality and Christian maturity. And what doesn't he say it is? Knowledge. What does he say it is? Love. Granted, you cannot have love if you do not have knowledge of the gospel, but you could certainly have knowledge of the gospel and have not love and totally miss the mark. Do you want to know who's the greatest Christian that you know? Do you want to know who is the most godly and mature, gospel-driven person in your life? (laughs) It's the one who loves. This is our unchanging call because we have an unchanging gospel. God has always been a God of love, and now he has revealed his love truly and fully in Christ. This is what makes him so great. His love, which was humble to the point of death on the cross for us, And now since our call is in Christ to follow him, this is the love that you and I are called to live out. This is the type of love. Maybe you can imagine or think back to the time that you were regenerated or received salvation. What God's love did to you. How it changed your heart and pricked you with affection, with mercy and grace. This is the unchanging gospel that you are called to take hold of and wrap yourself in. Saving love. For God and for other people. Don't forget it. It's good that we live in it. It's it's actually the only way that we are able to know and encounter the true Christ. Amen? That was point number one, the unchanging gospel. Right now we're moving to point number two, and I'd like to show you what is our kingdom hope. What is our kingdom hope? When um, I took my first call to... um, ministry. It was to uh, this church out in uh, rural Podunk, Iowa. It was awesome. I was the associate pastor of preaching and disciple making. And one of my main roles and responsibilities as a pastor um, of those two things was to um, lead a community group. And so um, I had this really awesome community group. We'd meet throughout the week just like many of us do here. And I had this one moment with my community group kind of seared into my mind that I'll never forget. We were all sitting out on a deck. It was a brisk night enjoying one another, and the topic of conversation was sin. And um, as we were talking, one of um, the wives spoke up, and um, she said, hey, um, we as Christians are called to love. And, And so I know that we're talking about sin, but I'm not sure if it's actually possible, being followers of Christ, to have hate for it. I'm kind of concerned how we're talking about evil and sin so harshly. And I love her dearly. Her husband's one of my best friends. They had just become Christians during this time. And so I I, I looked at her and I said, hey, thanks so much for sharing. Have you ever been able to um, read Romans chapter 12? And this is what Romans chapter 12 verse 9 says. Therefore, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. The word abhor here means to detest or to hate. In other words, hate actually has an appropriate place within the life and faith of a Christian. It is actually one of the things that enables us to truly love and hold fast to what is good. And I'll never forget what her eyes looked like as I, her pastor, told her that it was okay for her to hate something. She was really confused. Our God is holy, and if you read the scriptures, what you'll see 
is undeniable evidence that God, in all of his holy perfection, hates sin and is opposed to evil. In fact, these are the things that stand in direct opposition to his will for us and the entire earth. God's will and desire for us, his people, and the entire earth is there to be, is, is to be um, a, a presence and progression of goodness, truth, and love, of holiness and righteousness, light of the gospel shining in and through us. And if you look there in verse 8, this is exactly what John is speaking to here. He says this, at the same time, this is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him, Jesus, and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. This idea of darkness here is found seven times throughout this book, and uh, in the various contexts in which it is found, it indicates either the practice of sin or the realm in which sin prevails. And so John says that the darkness is passing away. Here he's referring to a realm, and the realm in which he's referring to is the world. How this world, in its current age, has a presence and practice of evil and darkness. And here, with the contrasting idea of light, what John is doing is acknowledging and explaining the presence and progression of God's kingdom come, which for us as Christians is our ultimate hope and focus. The whole reason and purpose of our entire lives are being. We understand Jesus in his first coming, the main purpose of his arrival was to bring or to inaugurate the kingdom of God here on earth. And we understand fully through the mission of God, his people in the New Testament, that we are the agents of redemption. God's people that he calls to build and advance his kingdom here on earth. This is why, my brothers and sisters, the scriptures call us to put our sin to death. Because in order for us to walk in the light and live in accordance with the will of God, which is his kingdom come, we must be holy as God is holy. And, and be righteous as God is righteous. And shine gospel light in the world for not only for them to see, but for them to be affected by and you'll know and you'll remember that this is actually the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. Revered is your name. Full of glory is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, here on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, the entire hope and call and reason for life as a Christian is the kingdom of God existing and advancing here on earth for the glory of God. And the main way in which this happens begins in us, in you and me as Christians. By and through the work of the Spirit in us, paired with our obedience to God, as we walk in the light of God and fellowship with God himself. This is why we are called to take our sin so seriously. Why? Because your sin and my sin ruin our fellowship and intimacy with God. And I think that far too often we take lightly, way too lightly, our sin. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, we, 
we just kind of excuse it or, or not think it's so bad or kind of think it's less bad than others, like it's not affecting anybody. It's just an extra drink. I just cheated my taxes. It's not hurting nobody. I could just illegally stream a movie. A movie. That's okay. Did you know that if you're not actively killing your sin, that your sin will be actively killing you? This is how serious sin is in our lives. Sin produces spiritual death. It strips us from knowing and enjoying completely the person and work and holiness of God. Um, we've been learning through this book that no one is perfect, how it's actually impossible for anyone and everyone to reach a state of sinless perfection. This is why we have Christ. But here, John is giving us a gospel gift. This is one of the ways that we grow in holiness and become more and more like the Savior. How? By confessing our sin, knowing that God is faithful to forgive us, and then by responding to our sin with violence as we seek to put it to death. Um, I just wanted to ask you, in light of this point here, what is it for you? What is it that you often stumble over? What, it, what is it that keeps popping up in your life seeking to hinder your intimacy or enjoying a deep relationship with the Lord? What's tarnishing your purity? Is it spiritual lethargy? Lack of prayer? Is it not reading your Bible when you know you're called to that life-given fountain? Is it pornography? Is it the way that you argue with your spouse? Is it the way that you worship your work and career? Is it your anger or selfishness? Is it wine? What is stripping you from spiritual life seeking to kill you? Your appropriate call in Christ by the Spirit is to kill that. We must be militant and diligent in killing sin and by the Spirit kill our sin. This is how serious this is. Jesus, he doesn't actually hold any punches when he talks about sin and the way that temptation comes into our life. In Matthew chapter 18, he actually said this. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptation comes, but woe to the one whom temptation comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to enter life with one eye than two and to be thrown into the hell of fire. We're preparing our hearts for the Lord's Supper this morning. And I'll invite you to prepare your hearts with me as you ask yourself and interrogate your own heart to find out what sin is keeping you from knowing the holiness of God. Now is the time where we start to repent and prepare ourselves to receive the elements. I want to give you courage here. If you do that, 
just like in our time of confession and assurance, God is ready to be merciful to you. He's ready to pour out his love through Christ because atonement has been made and fulfilled complete. That was point number two, our kingdom hope. I'd like to finish our third point in our time together and show you lastly the power and prize of Christ. As we finish up here, you may have noticed that both points that we've covered here this morning actually are commands to do. They're, they're, um, they're imperatives. The first call is to love. The second call is to holiness. And as John here finishes with this last few verses, he mentions this idea here, which in, in my opinion is just as hard or even harder than the first two. And that is the idea and call to love the one that we are tempted to hate. Yes, um, that's actually true. Um, we as Christians actually are tempted um, to hate people. We're not ex- excluded from that temptation. In other words, the true mark of a Christian is not loving the one who is easy to love. The true mark of love and life for a Christian is loving the one who is hardest to love in a selfless, free, compassionate way that needs no thank you or love in return. Jesus in Matthew 5 said, you have heard this said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You see, when you and I first look at John's teaching here because of the strong language that he uses, many of us probably don't think that we can be guilty of such an extreme I just want to remind you that John is actually not writing to the world. He's writing to the church, to Christians. And John would not have written this, and God would not have incorporated this in the canon of Scripture if your and I's temptation wasn't to fall into this trap. Looking at this teaching from another angle, John is saying that it is impossible for a Christian to dwell in the context of another Christian and think about them or treat them as enemies. I'll take it a step further and say and or even be indifferent towards them. This is the third time in the section that John uses his phrase, anyone who claims. Here he's referring to the Gnostics. These false teachers who during this time said that they were Christians, said that they were in Christ, but they were treating the apostles as enemies. Telling people in their church to avoid them, to reject them, and to treat them as ungodly and are crazy. John is saying, anyone who claims to be in Christ and acts like this cannot be. And so here, as a church, we learn how the cross is not just for us and the world, but for us in the church. And the call here is for us to think about and act upon this as we consider our lives and fellowship with each other. You see, as Christians who claim to be in the light, it's impossible to tolerate any lack of love towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, if you're actually thankful for the love and grace and mercy that God has shown you, how could you not also be love, uh, full of love and mercy and thankfulness towards the love and mercy that God is seeking to show towards another person in the church that you tend not to sit next to? And I think what happens to some of us, many of us, dare I even include myself, is that you and I are tempted 
to love people outside of the church more than we love people inside the church. And, and if you think about it practically, it makes sense, right? Why? Because we get to choose and pick who we want to spend time with outside the church. But when you come in, there's no picking or choosing. When you go out, you be around anybody who you want to be around that makes you feel good, that you see eye to eye with, et cetera, et cetera. But when you're in here, you're just together. Different personalities and flaws and sins and interests and stories, etc., etc. But it is here, it is in this church where the power of the cross of Jesus Christ is known. Through us, in our fellowship, in all of our differences, in all of our diversities, in all of our baggage, in all of our stories, this is where God intends for the power of Christ to live and to dwell. One man named David Jackman said this, we must be determined to do everything we can to channel more of God's love into the church by our active love towards people in the church. Is it not loving my brother or sister who also seeks to walk in the light, who needs my fellowship? The more Christians get wrapped up in themselves, concentrating on the, 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 the cultivation of their own lives or the preservation of their own virtue, the less clearly they will see the light. The greatest enemy of real love is self-love. That is the root, the root of hatred. And it is by sympathy and brotherhood that the fire of personal Christianity is flamed. My brothers and sisters, we're a family, which means we are not just called to love the world, but first and foremost, love this. So I just wanted to end our time by reminding you um, how and why this is all possible. And the answer, as you know, is very simple, but very profound, infinitely profound. It's because Christ our Savior has shown and fulfilled this same love towards us first. Romans chapter 5 verse 6. And at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone ever die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might dare die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were yet still sinners. Christ died for us. This is how we are able to love selflessly and freely. As we struggle with our sin, seeking to put it to death, we know of God's guarantee in Christ that there is grace and forgiveness forever. And as we seek by the Spirit to obey him in these things, we get God who is the prize. I just wanted to end by telling you one story. There was a time in my life that I struggled deeply with depression. I was in a, the, the depths of woe and despair. I would sit on my couch and feel like I had sunken into the floor. And in my depression, what I would usually do is put up my hoodie and glue my phone to my face. And I would seek to try to numb my sorrow with technology, trying to get lost in the, in, 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 in the abyss of the internet. And as I was struggling in this season, there was one day that I was doing that on the couch. I probably had been silent, present, but not actually really present with my family for about an hour. And this one moment, my wife Lizzie came out of the kitchen into the living room and she said to me, babe, get off the couch. And I was like, whoa, that's pretty strong. Lizzie never talks to me like that. She's very gentle with me. I seek to be gentle with her. She never commands or demands anything from me. And I looked at her, and I sought to convey without words that I couldn't. 
like my face. I just wanted to tell her that I couldn't, that I was powerless to do so. And she looked at me and she said, babe, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. The same power that rose Christ from the dead. You can choose to get up off the couch. And everything inside of me at that moment said, no, you can't. You're paralyzed. You're, you're struck with immobilization. You're nothing. You can't get off the couch. But by the Spirit, there was a glimmer of hope that came inside of me as I thought about the power of Christ that lives inside of me. And by God's grace, I, I got off off the couch. And I went to go cook a cake with my, my bride in, in the kitchen. Why would I close and tell you this story? Because love is a choice and it is hard. Especially when it's a call towards people we don't like, to those who are not like us, or ones that we're in tension with it. And killing our sin is hard. Both of these things are, humanly speaking, impossible. But John's command to us to love and put our sin to death does not come without the power of Christ. Indeed, Christ died. He rose. You had the Spirit. You can, by Christ himself, put your sin to death and love each other. And in doing that, seek and experience and encounter the love of God. Oh, I pray that we would know the power of the gospel through relational love. I'd like to close with prayer. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for visiting us this morning. Ready our hearts to receive the sacrament of your supper. Would you care for us? Would you fill us with power? Extend to us grace. We need you desperately, Lord. And you never withhold yourself. And so bless us, God. You're holy and righteous. There's no one like you. Call us to live holy lives. Empower us to do so. We pray in your name. Amen. This morning, um, we have a really great opportunity.